Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. Several weeks ago, millions of people began watching and sharing a clip from a documentary known as Plandemic. In it, according to a New York Times summary, a woman animatedly described an unsubstantiated secret plot by global elites like Bill Gates and Dr. Anthony Fauci to use the coronavirus pandemic to profit and grab political power. The video repeated narratives which conspiracy theorists have pushed on social media channels for weeks, some of which have gone so far as to suggest that Gates himself created the outbreak. Plandemic's viral popularity coincided with a special series from The Atlantic on conspiracy theories, including an in-depth look at the QAnon community. Here's how writer Adrian LaFrance described its beliefs. In its broadest contours, the QAnon belief system looks something like this. Q is an intelligence or military insider with proof that corrupt world leaders are secretly torturing children all over the world. The male factors are embedded in the deep state. Donald Trump is working tirelessly to thwart them. The eventual destruction of the global cabal is imminent, Q prophesies, but can only be accomplished with the support of patriots who search for meaning in Q's clues. To believe Q requires rejecting mainstream institutions, ignoring government officials, battling apostates, and despising the press. While many may roll their eyes at conspiracy theories, an increasing number of people around the world believe, propagate, and act on this knowledge. And we wanted to discuss their appeal and how Jesus instructed his followers to confront them. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I am Ted Olson. I'm editorial director at Christianity Today. Wow, that is a lot to wrap your head around if you have not been following all of this in the news or reading some of the coverage of all this. But Ted, you and I both had a chance to read this Atlantic article specifically on QAnon, and I would love to hear your thoughts about it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And, and you know, this is part of, it is the cover story for the uh, June issue of the Atlantic. It is also part of this, you know, massive, I don't know how it's more than half a dozen articles the Atlantic is running on their website called Shadowland. My gut check on it was, dang, you know, as as an editorial director of a magazine saying, oh, this is this is really well done. I wish we had done something like this at CT. We've done a lot on conspiracy theories, but the way they packaged this and the kind of some of the direction they took with some of the reporting and writing was terribly clever. So just there's some professional jealousy on that front. On the QAnon specifically... My introduction to that world was through another podcast called Reply All. Morgan, I know you listened to that podcast. Uh, you Did you hear the one on, on, on QAnon and kind of trying to explain that, that world? Yeah, I believe it was a little bit of time ago, no? Yeah, it was maybe, I don't know, was it a year ago? I don't know. So it was interesting to see kind of a little bit the political-ish take in the Atlantic. Uh, well, it's a, I mean, it's a pretty political conspiracy. But what was interesting about the Atlantic piece was it really used this kind of almost religious lens to say, you know, QAnon is kind of becoming essentially its own religion. There's some overlap with some folks who 
follow Christianity as well. There's uh, some syncretism. But I did think it was interesting to compare kind of this kind of conspiratorial thinking about highly placed you know, government people as kind of religious belief. There's pros and cons to that. I don't think it smears religion, religious people as much as other people kind of read it that way. I thought it was good reporting. And I thought it was also ironic maybe is not the best word, but I thought it really did seek to understand what's going on with QAnon more than just say, isn't this terrible? What can we do about it? What is driving this? What does it say about our world that this is growing? So I think that was, that's what we, that's what we want to do here on Quick to Listen To. How about you, Morgan? So there's this line that's in here that I thought I would read. Surely there are people who know that Q is a fantasy but participate because there's an element of QAnon that converges with a live action role playing game. And when I read that sentence, I was like, yep, this is definitely about why this thing is fun to believe in. I don't know how many people end up following all of this because they find some sort of joy or take pleasure in it. But it does seem that when you believe that there's all these dots to be connected all the time and all these big news stories, then there's something fun about it. I think that that is one thing that I got took away from reading this article is this sense of almost delight that people have in connecting all of these dots and seeing things that may just feel big and overwhelming and unconnected from their lives converge. And I do think that the story did that really well, even though it all seems pretty incredible to believe. <laughs> totally. Yeah, Alan Jacobs had a great post on his blog uh, talking about that that particular aspect, saying, you know, it's interesting about the followers of Q, and, and to be clear, Q is supposedly this highly placed government source who only speaks anonymously about what's really going on. He was saying that, you know, believing in Q has a lot of benefits, but doesn't have any costs associated with it right now. You have kind of these benefits of having, you know, tapped into the the secret knowledge to like really know what's, what's, what's happening. And you, of course, also have the benefits of being part of a, of a community. You have an explanation for a lot of what's going wrong in your life. But there's no, there's really no downside of believing in Q. There might be some like, oh, you believe in Q, you're, you know, you're Aren't you, aren't you stupid? But a lot of people who believe in Q kind of feel like elites already look down on them. So there's not an additional cost on that. I thought that was a really interesting, interesting perspective on that. Same. Agreed. So who's our guest today, Ted? Our guest today is someone that I am thrilled can come talk to this because he's already helped CT readers think through conspiracy theories to some degree. Drew Johnson, he's the director for the Center for Hebraic Thought, teaches biblical studies and theology at the King's College in New York City. He is the co-host of the Biblical Studies podcast on script. In the December issue of Christianity Today, he had an article that we've published online as Jesus Cares About Your Conspiracy Theory. By understanding the world of Scripture, we can understand how to approach conspiracies today. Drew, thank you for writing that article, and thank you for coming back to Christianity Today. Thank you for having me, Morgan and Ted. Now, your your background is especially in, or your your writing is heavily in epistemology, how we how we know stuff, and how the Bible kind of talks about how we know stuff. So that's what kind of drives your interest in conspiracy theories. Is that is that a fair? Yeah. In fact, I, I've had a book proposal sitting on my computer for a few years on Christian theology of conspiracy thinking. I never brought myself because I get so agitated by the topic. I, I couldn't actually stomach the idea of writing an entire book on it, but I've been thinking about this for a while. Well, one thing that you know Morgan and I were talking about as we were talking about this podcast was conspiracies 
it might help in a minute to kind of just talk about what we define as a conspiracy theory. But, you know, I think we all have conspiracy theories that we reject or ones that we believe, ones that we kind of, one of the reasons the conspiracy theories exist is because there have been fairly epic conspiracies. I mean, Watergate, for example, there's an example that, you know, it was demonstrably true. Other ones are are things that we probably think are true. We may not be able to prove. I don't know. Do you have, we were saying it might be fun to kind of mention, reveal to our podcast audience, maybe tarnish our unsullied <laughs> reputation. I will, you know, to, to, to talk about conspiracy theories that we secretly believe in. I, Who wants mine, to go first go here? First. Let's see. <laughs> Well, mine is a little bit demonstrable, uh, but oh, it's like kind okay. of my favorite. I, now, this is this was more when we were phrasing this as like, what's your favorite conspiracy theory? And so feel free to answer it that way. It is this conspiracy to make our taxes more complicated. ProPublica has done a fair bit of reporting about how Intuit runs TurboTax and H&R Block have spent just bajillions of dollars to lobby Congress to make sure that our taxes are as complicated as they possibly can be so that we have to keep buying TurboTax and keep buying H&R Block. And there's some interesting reporting from ProPublica that indicates that there's been some efforts to make our taxes much simpler without reducing any of the tax benefits. Each year, I spend a ton of money on TurboTax, and I know that almost all that money is going to making me have to buy TurboTax in the future. That is a conspiracy theory that I sense before before ProPublica's reporting. And I was happy to see ProPublica report, report that out. It makes me mad every year because, man, it's just so hard to do your taxes without it. It's Anyway, that's, that's one of mine. How about y'all? Do you want to fess up? Well, I haven't paid taxes in 27 years, so I I don't struggle with that particular issue. Um, (laughs) But, uh, well, A, I do think Watergate was a conspiracy, but I think it's found to be true. Uh, I am old school. I do, you know, I'm old enough to have been deeply affected by all the old documentaries um, on the JFK assassination. Yes. Uh, and, and there's, it's just too many things at just the right moment for just to have been one guy that I I like, I can buy into (laughs) the one shooter theory, but there's a little part in the back of my brain that just goes, "Eh, I wouldn't be surprised if something comes out eventually. Yes. I will say the Oliver Stone movie. I believe that Mm -hmm. up until watching the Oliver Stone movie. Yeah. And then I'm like. He well, does us no favors. Spend millions of dollars on this. Uh, yeah. this, this. This is not as convincing as. That's kind of the interesting thing, right? Part of the appeal of conspiracy theories is that once someone does kind of a high grade version of weighing it all out, it, it actually kind of undermines it. Like it's the low quality stuff that is often most convincing. I just feel like I don't really know all the facts behind this. So I, it's hard to say like, this is the conspiracy theory and why I believe it. But I just feel like I remember in the same vein as Drew's people talking about the Kennedys and how they died and the strange prematureness that seems to surround that family, Ted Kennedy aside. I don't know. Maybe he's the exception that proves the rule. But that was definitely something that I think about whenever I see a headline that says someone in that family has passed away. Yeah. And, you know, it is interesting. There's there's a you know, new book out about the conspiracy to assassinate Lincoln, the first conspiracy. You know, we know, we know that the the actual successful one was also a conspiracy. It is just interesting to think about all the kind of political assassination conspiracies and also, you know, solitary assassins over time. You know, my wife works for an international development organization and is talking to a lot of people overseas. And of course, you know, there's a lot going around with COVID right now. There's a lot of just different conspiracies going around in the U.S., but also internationally about like the origins and also the treatments and, and how, you know, is this all an effort to bring us under some sort of 
Epic Control. So good time. It's a good time to talk about these things other than just, you know, an Atlantic cover story coming out. Drew, help us out. Like, do you, is there a good definition? I know conspiracy theories is something you've looked into. It's not like, you know, your your core area, your epistemology and, and, and subsets of it. Is there is there something that's a, that defines a, cons- a conspiracy theory that's more than just like you think two people agreed to do something secretly? Well, I think there is that secretive element. I, I mean, any, anything you come up with for a definition of a conspiracy theory will also be true of, of Watergate. Right, something that does turn out to be true as well. So I, you know, there are elements that start stinking when a conspiracy theory turns wrong, but it's generally just a grand explanation that is essentially trying to identify various pieces that don't look like they fit together, but they do. So I think when it starts to stink, and, and this is obviously to explain some phenomena that we're experiencing, when it goes wrong, I think is where it, it's typically focuses on malicious planning by secretive structures that nobody can see except we can. And then the question becomes, well, how do you know this? And then more importantly, from the biblical perspective, uh, we'll talk about later, but how do you know you're not wrong, right? How do you know you're, that you're leaning into something that is worth examining or that you could examine and understand? The trouble with conspiracy p- theories that we, the ones we think of and the ones we kind of gave examples of, is that often become indefeasible beliefs. So beliefs that just can't be shown to be wrong at all. Because recently, actually what generated the article that I wrote for CT was I, I had a discussion with somebody who believed the earth was flat and had a Christian view that the earth was flat. You know, the biblical authors believed the earth was flat. Therefore, they were right. Everybody else has been wrong since. And I realized that in discussing it with them, anything I said basically just showed that I was either <laughs> part of the conspiracy or I was one of the sheeple, you know, who just bought, drank the water and didn't. You run into this where you realize, oh, wait, you believe something that you've locked yourself into a corner or, or painted yourself into a corner where you, you can't ever be wrong about this. And I think that flags up something about the appeal, the conspiracy theory. I think also I would highlight when they go wrong, there's generally a lack of humility, right? So the questions that aren't ever being asked is, how could I confidently assess this theory that I'm believing in or think that might be the case? How could I be wrong about this? And how would I know that I was wrong if I were? You know, the big one, does it matter if I know this? So many of them, I'm like, in the end, like, okay, maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. I actually... The editor took that line out of my piece, but I said, it doesn't, doesn't even matter if the conspiracy is true or not for most of these. It won't really change anything. And I think the other question that's not asked that I, I think is maybe one of the most important from the biblical perspective and just from pastoral perspective is, could I be participating in misleading others and especially those who are vulnerable with respect to conspiracy theories? Also, one of the things that got taken out of the article, which is, these are all correct edits. I'm just pointing out what, what, what's no longer in the article is, I worked in counter-narcotics in Colombia in the Amazon in the 1990s uh, when I was in the military. And it was a very small operation. I was not special forces, but we worked directly with small groups of special forces and uh, out in the middle of the jungle all, all by ourselves. And it was really boring work, but it sounds sexy, right? This is in the burgeoning days. You can't of- tell us that, Drew, in the day. <laughs> really boring work. <laughs> it, it was. It was like everything else. All combat operations are 99% sheer boredom and 1% sheer terror. It was just like that as well. It was the burgeoning days of the internet. And so I'd go home and I, you know, I just type in these places, these covert operations I'd been on. And, and then I'd find all of these bulletin boards back then, you know, like before blogs, where people are discussing what the U.S. military is doing down in Colombia. And it was humorous at first. And, and then I realized, oh, wait, people might actually try to take action on these ideas or, you know, do, do something. You know, they're mostly harmless, just people speculating. 
What I also realize is that reporters from, you know, the Wall Street Journal or New York Times, you know, big powerhouse companies, they would also report on what we were doing down there. They didn't have access to any confidential or uh, classified information, but they tended to pretty much describe what we were doing. I mean, many times I'd be like, how did they know that? Right. And it's because they would live down there. They talked to people. They knew the place. They knew the, the situation. They talked to government officials. And so they were connected into all these places appropriately. And they were able to piece together a picture that was fairly accurate of what we we're involved in. And of course, it was much more boring than the conspiracy theories about what we were doing down there. You know, and this is where it, it drives me personally crazy is people tend to have conspiracy theories that basically require the government to be one minded, singularly minded and perfectly efficient. And anybody who's been in the military or worked with CIA, DEA, U.S. Customs, all the people who work down there. You know, we always used to consider a minor miracle when a plant plane would land and not fall apart, right? So many things had to go right for any particular thing to happen. Just seems silly for anybody who has personal experience in some of these things where they, where people believe there's this grandiose singular force that's pulling all these levers of power to make things happen. The grandiose nature of things is really interesting to me because that does seem to be very common in everything that we've been reading about QAnon, for instance. I do have a question, though. So, you know, we're all Christians here. Christianity has this very ancient text It makes that makes lots of meta claims about reality. There's hundreds of examples of prophecy, which, of course, Christians believe have actually been fulfilled. Drew, how do you make sense of what is a religion and what is a conspiracy theory? I would punt a little bit on the religion question, <laughs> but let me, let me deal with the first part. We say prophecies that have been fulfilled. I'll, I'll just point out within scripture, that is not obvious to any of the New Testament authors. It becomes obvious decades later, you know, as the ap apostles are kind of figuring out what has happened. But even within the gospels, you know, I'll point to Luke 24 as your, your key text here for thinking about this. People who followed along with Jesus for years uh, were committed to his whole roadshow were walking away dispirited because only women had claimed that he was resurrected. And, you know, almost like this, well, you can't trust them, right? And it began with this, this little phrase Luke throws in there, and their eyes were kept from knowing him, right? So they didn't realize that Jesus pops alongside these disciples. And notice Jesus, what does he do? He explains from the prophets in the Torah that all of these things had to come to pass. But they still didn't understand him or know what was going on. And it wasn't until he broke bread and then they, Luke quotes Genesis 3, verse 7 here, and their eyes were open and they knew him. The only other time that phrase is used. And so there's this idea that like, you know, we, we kind of think of it as like, oh, hundreds of prophecies were fulfilled. You know, these people that work out all these prophecies were fulfilled. It just wasn't portrayed that way in scripture, that when Jesus talks about these things, he, yeah, he does talk about that he's come to fulfill these things, but he also uses Deuteronomy's language of hidden and revealed. There's Deuteronomy 29. What is hidden belongs to God and what is revealed belongs to us to keep and to do and us and our children. And so there's this kind of division of labor when it comes to understanding what's going on in the empire of God, you know, through Israel and then now through Jesus and his followers. I think there's this kind of God-given discernment that looks back at prophecies and says, oh, it was a divine conspiracy, to borrow a famous philosopher's term, right? It was, there was this kind of grand scheme to pull all this stuff together. But even that, God had to help people uh, to understand, which, again, signals there is a humility in knowing and there's not this kind of power grab for knowledge. So a lot of what we feel, and you guys highlighted it in your gut check, 
there's a kind of a soft Gnosticism that goes on is that we just want to know because we think knowledge is power in and of itself. And scripture, going all the way back to Deuteronomy for that, is saying, no, doing what God has commanded is actually the power part. That's 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 the mystery revealed, is being able to do it and, the, and then the doing understanding. The biblical authors would make a category distinction here between practicing the religion of Christianity, which does have these mysterious elements that do get revealed, these kind of conspiratorial elements. But to think that you, by yourself, with an internet connection, are going to figure that out would seem, I think, like sophistry or Gnosticism to the early church. Because this, this, so this is this is where the rubber hit, hits the road, and where I really want to drill down. Because this is you know the focus of your your article. But this is where I kind of keep coming back to that is a little bit less how we I think as American evangelicals often approach the text. So I'm wondering. So there's this you know idea of the perspicuity of the Bible, right? This the, the clarity. I you know in some ways a, a simple simple reading. But I you know so much of what I see us doing when we've got the Bible is this idea that there's hidden knowledge or there's going to be a special, well, I shouldn't use the term special revelation because that means something <laughs> different, but but there's going to be there's going to be a surface meaning and then there's also going to be kind of a little bit of a, uh, of a deeper meaning that we can find. And a lot of this is what you find with, the, and th- a lot of this is good. There's a lot of this good intertextuality of scripture. I'm sure that it, all three of us could talk at length about times when we had that Emmaus experience where where all of a sudden the interconnectedness and some of the things that we had read in, in, in one part of the Bible really inform what we're noticing in another part of Scripture. And we're like, oh, I, I'm starting to understand this concept more. I'm starting to understand this, this verse more. And certainly in the early church, that kind of reading intertextually and having one one scripture and form another scripture is huge. I mean, that's the, the dominant way of reading scripture. But you see, and I think also that secret knowledge, you see that, I mean, secret knowledge, I, I'm putting that in quotes, not that it's uh, purely secret in a Gnostic sense, but you have mm-hmm. it every time a pastor gets up and says, well, you know, the Greek word for, you know, trouble uh, here is, yeah. is trouble, right? Um <laughs> Or whatever, you know, <laughs> I, I kind of, I'm super grateful that my, my pastor does not do this, but I, I've heard lots of sermons where, you know, somehow by, you know, referencing to the, the original Greek or the original Hebrew, you're getting it like the real meaning beyond this kind of translation that you have in your hands. And so I'm wondering, there's a part of me that says, yeah, like all, all that we need has been, has been revealed. But there's another part of me that says, we don't actually as evangelicals often act that way. We often think that we need to study it a little bit more. And we've also seen people who ha- who take a very simplistic, surfacey reading, draw conclusions where we where you say, wow, that's really not what that really not what that verse is about. I can do all things through, through Christ who strengthens me does not mean that you're going to break that running record. So I'm curious where you see the intersection between that kind of Gnostic desire for secret knowledge combining with how does it relate to that kind of perspicuity of scripture and this need to, he still has hidden things and our job is just to read and obey. That's the million dollar question. I I have a very simple answer to this question. In scripture, as in science and everywhere else, it values knowing that is embodied and, and fully actuated through embodied actions. If you think about learning math or learning how to read x-rays or, you know, any kind of technical skill, it's always embodied. It always involves time, history, coaching, an authority who can help you understand what's going on, who can show you, you know, Jesus 
reasoning with you so that in order that you might see what he's talking about. You know, what does Gnosticism do? It says, no, no, no you'll, you're just going to get, you're going to get access to these, the secret knowledge and it's going to open up salvation, rescue, or another world for you. Where the, the message from scripture from beginning to end, from, I mean, this begins in Genesis too, is this world around you is real and this world around you has the right to teach you and you submit to it. And we have people who understand better than other people and they have the right to coach you. And it's through our interactions with the social body and our own body with creation in which we come to understand. I would just say that's the scripture's answer to all of this. So ritual takes part, you know, ritual is also part of how we understand the world. It's not just symbolic wordplay or actions with our hands, just waving our hands to make, make it look like shamanism, but it's actually how we come to understand the world around us. And if, if that's the case, then any kind of systematizing or theorizing, because a lot of people on social media have been jumping on me going, well, don't scientists also just have theories about how things fit together and how, why is that not a conspiracy theory? Well, there's an easy answer to that. They, they constantly check what they think against reality and a reality can kick back and say, no, you're wrong. And the scientist goes, oh, you're right. Okay. I was wrong. I got to try something else on a good day, right? When we're being humble. And so I think that's the main distinction that bi- biblical authors are going to w- want to make is time in history, in body, in your individual body and social body. That's where true understanding comes about. Everything I'm saying is uncontestable amongst the sciences and math and physics and everything else. If that's the case, then anything that wants to sell you a program where you understand without actually going into the real world and testing and talking to people who are better knowers of this than you, that's going to be problematic on every front. Conspiracy theories are one such version of that problem. Yeah. On one level, I'm, I'm shouting the amen on that, especially with the, the discussion of science. So where do you fit in all the various scriptures that talk about not just the hiddenness, right? You, 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 you mentioned that, especially Paul, talking about the mysteries of God being hidden, but not as close to the Lord's people. But there is also this, you know, to use some of the language of the conspiracy theories in the QAnon world, like there is an anti-elite idea in some of these passages, it seems, if you just read them at a surface level, read them as, as the simplest possible way, plain text reading, that there's a deliberate effort to confound the wise, so to speak, or to whether you want to say that God is d- deceiving. There's certainly an idea that not only are these things hidden, but that the smart people aren't necessarily going to be the people who figure it out. This, uh, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. So it's not purely a like, oh, these things are out there for anyone to discover and, and obey. But there is some sense that they are being deliberately hidden from the wise and learned. How does that factor into this idea that, that this stuff has been revealed and, and ours is just to, to trust and obey? Okay, so there's a really long answer to that question. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with the context in which, I mean, I'm obviously, 1 Corinthians 1 here is going to be, and 2 are going to be key texts about wisdom being revealed and also the shaming of the, the mighty and the, the wise and the philosophy of the world, as well as Colossians 2. The issue there, I would say, part of the problem is, is that the West has basically appropriated a Hebraic view of the world. Our value systems, our moral judgments, you know, my best friends who are, who are atheists, 
diehard, well-reasoned atheist still live essentially a Christian life, Christian morals based on the Hebrew Bible and then perpetuated through the New Testament. And so I think in context, we we could adjust and, and say, yeah, in the Greco-Roman world, what was considered available to the wise is radically different from what Jesus is teaching, you know, basically Jesus is just reteaching the Torah and many of its principles and the new covenant principles that extend from it. I think that changes a little bit when the culture itself has become Torah shaped and Christian in principle. So I think you have to adjust what's hidden and what's revealed. I, I do think also that it points back to that point that I said, they were kept from knowing Jesus and then their eyes were opened. It was, they're both in the passive. And so there is some like divine effect of the, the true mysteries of, of the universe, the empire of God are found by living out the empire of God. I'm changing out the word kingdom for empire here. And then in that is part of the mechanism that God uses to reveal to his people things that are unknowable otherwise. Now, again, there's a very long answer that could go along with this, but I think part of it just comes down to if you're not living out the, what the empire of God with your body in community, what it requires of you, then yes, I think you actually are logically cut off from knowing many of these things that God wants us to know. In the same way that, you know, when I read the Bhagavad Gita for the first time, you know, you have this this little story about a guru who takes on a disciple and the disciple has to carry firewood for him for 10 years and then he can ask him one question. And then, you know, he has to carry firewood for him two years before he can ask him the second question. And I just think like, well, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so... So if there is something to be known in that in that guru system of Brahmanism within Hinduism, I'm just never going to know it because I'm just not going to do that thing, right? And I think it gets at the, the nature that knowledge is ethical. It's always ethical. It always requires us to do something and be certain kinds of people in order to understand the world that way. And most people flinch at that, or I should say philosophers flinch when you say knowledge is ethical, but you say like, look, there are certain questions that we believe are wrong to ask, like, how long would it take a baby in cold water to die, you know, at 32 degree water? There have been people willing to ask that question and experiment on it in the 20th century, in modern medicine in the 20th century. But we just find certain questions unethical. And so we don't ask them. We say, no, it's not worth knowing. To know the answer to that question makes us less of a human. So it's not worth knowing that thing. So I think we kind of all acknowledge this kind of acting out what's required in order to understand things does draw a line in the sand as to whether you're going to be able to understand those things or not. In other words, you're not a Gnostic. You can't get there apart from your body. It's almost as if our bodies matter and we are created to be bodies. Almost like that. Yeah. And so that's where that secret knowledge of the, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to overly lump all the Gnostic sects together, but that is where I combine both their desire for secret knowledge with the kind of poo-pooing of, of embodiment. Drew, in your piece for CT, you discuss how Jesus dealt with conspiracy theories during his time. They're not labeled conspiracy theories as such. How are they referenced by Jesus? It's important to point out that just because something's not called a conspiracy theory doesn't mean that it's not addressed by Scripture, obviously. If I can flip the emphasis and say, what's the positive emphasis of Scripture or what, is, what does Scripture emphasize? Clearly, understanding things well and avoiding error is emphasized throughout scripture. In fact, when I went to write my PhD dissertation, I wanted to under, understand proper knowledge in scripture. And I ended up writing mostly on avoiding error because that's where the emphasis is on scripture. Obviously, when you come to conspiracy theories and you, you have someone touting that they understand something, that they know something, I say, well, wait, how do you, how do you, what's your control? How do you know that you're not wrong? What, what are you cross-checking this against? 
and there's nothing there or there's really weak systems there that instantly tips me off or way outside of where scripture advocates. And so if we just look at that issue alone, then you'd say things like, okay, well, where does it say, go back to Deuteronomy 29, why in the teaching to the children of Israel does Yahweh at this very key moment in, in Deuteronomy emphasize, hey, the stuff that's hidden away, it belongs to me, but the stuff that's revealed, it not only belongs to you, but it belongs to your children and not just as knowledge, but to do and to keep it, right? Again, engaging the, the community in their bodies. And you better make sure that you're listening to the right voice. This is the other thing that I think that comes up across scripture beginning in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. Whose voice you listen to determines what kind of embodied actions you're going to take, which determines what kind of things you're going to understand. Genesis 2 and 3, listening to the wrong voice is the problem in the garden. It's actually the only problem that's identified by, by God in that scenario. And then as you follow out the rest of the story of Israel into the New Testament, whose voice you listen to and obey kind of determines how it's going to go for you, well or poorly. So when I think about what scripture is doing, it's putting this heavy emphasis on listening to the authenticated, authoritative voice of the prophets who God promises to send, cross-checking the prophets against what God has said. So in Deuteronomy's teaching on future prophets, he said, God actually said, this is some of the hardest teaching to hear. I'm going to raise up future prophets. I'm going to authenticate them with signs and wonders. And then I'm going to tell them to mislead you to see if you're paying attention, to see if you really are following what's going on here. There are no true and false prophets, at least in the, the Torah. They're true prophets authenticated by God who can lead you truly or falsely. That's the, that's the categories that are set up in Scripture, or at least in the Torah. These are the emphases of Scripture. So we can, now we can just say, and this is why I'm the, I'm, you can tell I'm the, the director of the Center for Hebraic Thought. Once you understand how Scripture thinks about thinking, as, as it were, or thinks about discovery and examining and now we can just, we can drag conspiracy theories into our corner and say, well, what would it do with these kinds of things, right? Rumors and rumors of wars. And it's not surprising then that Jesus is invoking Genesis and Deuteronomy, both conceptually and the language of, of Deuteronomy, when he talks about the day that he returns. He says like, look, people are going to come and they're going to say, we figured it out. Here he is. There he is. Look there. Look here. And what's interesting to me is Jesus doesn't say, no, don't listen to them. Instead, here's how you'll know the conspiracy is unfolding. He just says, don't listen to them. You, you don't need to know. Don't worry about it. It's going to be obvious when it happens, you know, like lightning shoots across the sky. So he kind of advocates this, I would say, an Ecclesiastes, Deuteronomic view that there, you know, there are just certain things you can't know. And it's fine. Don't worry. When, when you need to know, you'll know. Otherwise, like that bumper sticker that I used to see, Jesus is coming. Look busy. Do the things that you know you're supposed to be doing. And this isn't something you worry about. I'm sure you guys have talked about this on this podcast, and I, I'm sure you've talked about it in CT. But how many times does Jesus say, like, look, I don't even know the day or the hour of my return. And yet I remember in 1986, I wasn't a Christian, but I was, lived in Oklahoma. And all these kids on my bus were like, today's the day when Jesus is coming back. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? You know, and that's happened several times. I mean, that happened recently. Uh, within the last 10 years, it happened again, where Christians freaked out about this. I would lump all this together in just bad forms of thinking, examining, reflecting, which scripture talks a lot about continuously. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, 
Are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't... I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. One of the things about these conspiracy theories is, like, does it really matter if this really happened? Like, for example, if, if the moon landing was faked, does, you know, does that change, does that going to change the way you live? Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. Probably that's not going to change anything about your life. But where we've seen conspiracy th- thinking get a little dangerous is more recently. So like with the COVID-19 stuff, the conspiracy that like COVID-19 is all a hoax, for example, it, you know, is leading people to to take actual action, right? And it's rooted, I think, in that rightful Christian concern that the powerful are exploiting people, the rich are, are, are pulling levers to attempt to get ri- richer, this, and this notion that ultimately we're wrestling not just against flesh and blood, but against you know, powers and principalities, powers and principalities being, you know, political systems, but also, you know, demonic presences in in high places. There's an element in which, uh, you know, I there wasn't a lot of Christian thinking for, necessarily, but, you know, you have a guy go to a, you know, pizza parlor because he thinks, you know, kids are being abused in the basement and he, and he, and he brings, you know, and he, sh- and he shoots the place up. This is what happened. This is not a conspiracy theory that is not active actionable. It is a conspiracy theory that, that was actionable and ended up being terribly violent. There is an element, if, you know, to summarize some of what you're saying, if I, let me just, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm hearing you right, like one of the, the weapons against conspiracy thinking is like, is it 
demonstrable? Like, you know, almost is it is it testable? Can you document it? Is this something that's kind of open? Tr- truth is generally going to be open. But there is also the sense that like the principalities and powers are really good at hiding truth. They're really good at pulling the levers of, of nonsense. Whether you're, you know, on the left side and thinking that Trump and Fox News are manipulating people and, and conspiring to mislead the public, or whether you're on the conservative side and think that, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post have conspired to deceive people about Trump. There's conspiratorial thinking on both sides, both of which may actually be true at the same time. So where does that leave us if we are to fight for justice? But we know that wickedness loves the darkness. Can I clarify that that wickedness, father of lies kind of stuff? Because I, I think, you know, just as a biblical guy, I have to say, you know, when I ask student, when we go through Genesis three and I say, okay, let's read closely what the, what the serpent says. And I say, okay, now how many, how many of the things you said is a lie, right? It's just not true. And then we walk through and, and I show them how the narrator of Genesis very carefully reveals that all three things the serpent said were actually true. They do not were die. actually true. Yeah. yeah they right. do not die in that day. They do become like God knowing good and evil and their eyes were open. And the narrator uses the exact parallel language to, to demonstrate that what the serpent says. So the issue wasn't wasn't whether the serpent is a lie. And I, and I actually think the father of lies, the way we think of lies is probably not the way the biblical authors are thinking about them in, in the exact same way. And so I think there's this very thin thinking on they're trying to deceive us. The issue is, and again, when God comes into the, I'm sorry, I pull, I'm a biblical theology guy, so I pull everything back into the garden and I love it. work my way out from there. You know, when God comes into the garden and he finds the man, A, he calls for the man. When he finds the man, the man says why he's hiding. First question out of God's mouth, who told you? He doesn't say, how did you figure it out? He says, who told you? He assumes there had to have been another authoritative voice in the mix who was being heated. And then again, that's his only indictment in the scene is Genesis 3.17. Because you listen to the voice of your wife, and the implication is here, you're standing with your wife listening to the voice of the serpent, right? But he, he flags it on the relationship between the wife and the husband. But it's because you listen to the voice that this went wrong. It's the only indictment of God in the Garden of Eden. It's the only time he says what went wrong. There is this kind of like, and I think you're right. I think, you know, there is, you said it perfectly that there's this kind of noble conspiracy mind that's like, I don't want little children to be abused by people systemically by dark powers. And I think like, okay, that's actually very, uh, that's a biblical impulse and just a human impulse, we hope. But I think the larger impulse that plays here is not that one. I actually, I sense, and I may be completely wrong, but I sense the impulse is I don't want to get fooled. I don't want to get cheated. I don't want to get scammed. I want to like find knowing the right thing is my anchor that I want to, that's the rock I want to anchor into or something. And so there's this real sensitivity to being one of the, the sheeple, as one of my old high school friends calls me. There's something right about that. But again, it, it becomes a soft form of Gnosticism, you know. G.I. Joe, what, what was that phrase at the end of G.I. Joe cartoons? Uh, now I know and knowing's half the battle. It's, it almost makes knowing into the whole battle, right? It's that if, if we just know these things, then we're good to go. And if we know what's really going, if we're woke, you know, you, you get this in lots of across the spectrum thinking. If we're woke in certain ways, then we're impervious to the ups and downs and the clutter of data. The biblical diagnosis, and I'll, I'll, I'll say it and maybe someone can look it up or read one of my little books. The biblical impulse here is not that you have to be afraid of someone lying to you. It's that somebody will always be interpreting your world for you, and you have to lean into the wise practices that God has given his people in order to discern what is worth listening to and what's not, and that he's constantly going to test us on these, right? People say, did God send COVID to bring the church in America together or to teach us a lesson? I, 
how could we know such a thing, right? I certainly, though, do believe that God is using this as a test of us, right, to who we trust and how we think about what's worth trusting and understanding here. And so I just think a lot of us are using what's been handed to us and and we are failing <laughs> spectacularly. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, social media is a distorted lens. So through that distorted lens, it looks like we're failing spectacularly on this front as Christians. I think that's probably true. Is that there's an element in which, you know, in any in any good kind of pastoral approach to these things, you want to take a look at, at what fix in yourself. But I think a lot of us who are CT, good, good, quick to listen listeners, CT readers, we've we've looked at that log in our own eye, hopefully. <laughs> and we do care about the speck in our neighbor's eye. You have the friend who thinks that you're the sheeple. We all have people on our Facebook feeds, maybe that we haven't muted, that we're like, oh man, you know, Joe, like stop posting this stuff. Where do you see scripture you do see Jesus rebuking. You do see, you know, Paul in some places saying, don't get caught up in, in all these genealogies or some of these, you know, silly disputes. But to what degree are we to rebuke our Christian brothers and sisters that are uh, falling prey to some of these conspiracy theories? And to what degree are we more to kind of I don't know, treat them, in, treat them in some ways as unbelievers, as Jesus might put it, and use more of an apologetics approach. Like, oh, tell me more about your belief and, and then try to slowly guide them back toward truth. Or do we just challenge them and say, you know, cite your sources? These are all possibilities, but does scripture have counsel or do you have extra biblical counsel on, on confronting these things? You know, it depends on the time factor. If I have weeks with them, I, I mean, part of the, the problem is I'm I'm going to be making arguments from scripture. I'm going to basically say, look, here's the drumbeat of scripture on this issue. And the problem I run into with students or parishioners or anybody is they kind of look at you like, is that all you got is, is just scripture? You know, you're, you're just citing what scripture says over and over again. And there's this real, it's almost the same problem as being applied back to the problem or the same kind of thinking as being applied to the problem. Well, I've never looked at those scriptures. In fact, most of the time when I reason, I'll say, well, what do you think of numbers five and the, the experiment that you can run for jealous husbands to do, do away with their jealousy? And most people don't even know that's in there, right? And so there's a real lack of literacy on what scripture does teach. I'm in that phase of life where I'm the contrarian my whole life. And God's been teaching me like the old, you get catch more flies with honey than vinegar. So I'm trying to go the other way at this point in my life a lot. Like, let's just sit down and read scripture together and think about what the biblical authors are really hopped up on and what they think is really important and why they would say these things this way. And then I, you know, I walk them through several texts. There's a common sense appeal that you can make to people and just say like, now what do you gain? Let's just say the earth is flat. Fine. What, what do we gain or lose from that view? Also like, okay, well, scripture teaches a lot again about we are supposed to be thinking about conspiracies that we know will always be true because of the brokenness of humanity. Are we doing anything about those things? So just looking at the disparity in our, in my experience, there tends to be a little bit of a disparity in the way we treat conspiracy theories that we know to be true. You know, where's your data question? Like, give me the data. Well, I, I, I don't even go down that road. I just ask the question like, hey, you want to have a talk at like, I'll just walk you through right now. If you have an hour, I'll walk you through. Here's what scripture says about how we're supposed to know stuff. <laughs> and after the end of that hour, I can just go like, okay, now let's look at that conspiracy theory again. And it looks like the pale, pallid, little wimpy guy over just spouting off, you know, off facts or whatever. I think there's also like, hey, I know you're just thinking through this thing and you may or may not know, but there's a real danger in this. And I think what people aren't thinking about, A, the mentally unwell in our communities 
people with schizoaffective disorders, bipolar, anxiety problems, dementia, or, or Alzheimer's, they are disproportionately affected by these conspiracy theories. They are listening to all of this as well. And it gets folded into their distorted lens of reality that's already, you know, a chemical or other problem. And so there really is just kind of like, do you care about, you know, the COVID thing? Like, let's just, can we be conservative and just say like, what's the least amount of damage we can do with this kind of thinking, right? And is there some way in which we're not even thinking about those who might be damaged around us? There's also, you know, that I'm one of those people, I came out of Covenant Seminary, trained under kind of the the good, the good version of Francis Schaeffer, that, that view that, you know, whatever people are saying, there's probably some heart issue right under it. You know, a loss of a sense of power. Or there's a reason why people are attracted to drama, as you guys point out, people like these as entertainment. One thing I, I've noticed is that people who experience oppression and racism, you know, racism is a form of oppression. They also get really paranoid and conspiracy minded as well in, in, in a really distorted way. Right. So maybe an African-American person who's in an all white community will receive, you know, they'll, they'll experience some kind of subtle or maybe overt racism in, in that community. It gets to the point where they can no longer actually interpret anybody's actions or saying correctly or well, I should say, because that experience of racism has made them paranoid that there's all this other conspiratorial whispering and, and secretiveness around them, right? So there are real and broken reasons why people become paranoid and, conspir- and conspiracy minded. I don't mean to link those directly. Which basically what I'm saying is there's a vulnerable class of people, and I don't mean there it's a vulnerable class, but we're, we're, we're all people who could potentially be in this class or move in and out of this class, people who will be disproportionately affected by what we are basically doing for entertainment. Just to conclude, I'm wondering if maybe you can say how you might challenge us that don't, you know, adhere to conspiracy theories as we might know them. What type of feedback or lesson we might learn from seeing so many people swept up in them? Um, obviously, it's easy to scorn these or roll our eyes, and we may do that on the individual level, but I don't know if there's larger societal feedback that you might encourage us to incorporate. The the simple feedback is it's bad thinking. It's self-reinforcing. It doesn't critique, and, and, and it's bad thinking according to scripture, right? There's just a basic reason if you believe scripture is true and guiding and prescriptive in any way. I think all the biblical authors are telling a story in which this is not a way that we should be thinking about our world. There is no such thing as a neutral conspiracy theory. It always plays out to the weakest. Like everything we do, it always plays out and affects the the most vulnerable the hardest. While you may be able to like toy around with the conspiracy idea in your mind, you might not know that the 23, 25-year-old next to you is actually getting ready to go into a bout of bipolar and is going to pick up everything you just said and use it to have a psychic breakdown or something, right? There just has to be this concern for those around us in various ways. As I did in the piece, just point to, there's a history of persecution of Christians. There's a history of persecution of lots of different people. But wherever you find persecution, right under it, you find conspiracies and rumors that go along with it, including like, you know, the protocols of the elders of Zion, right? That was a document that basically purported to be a conspiracy of the Jews to take over the world that gave a lot of people of ammo to go and do horrible things once again to the Jewish people. The lie here that, you know, if there's a lie from Satan, it's that conspiracy theories are neutral and they're fine, or that you're better off leaning into them and believing them than you are walking away from them and going like, no, I'm fine if I don't know or think this. Well, thank you so much for all this food for thought. I'm sure it's going to give our listeners a lot to mull over. For folks who do have feedback for us, please send us an email. We are at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. That is podcast with an S. We are also on Twitter at CT 
podcasts. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments. We ask everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy. Morgan, I always go first. You go first this week. Okay. What brought me joy was another book that I read. I read James Baldwin's If Beale Street Could Talk. James Baldwin is just a superb author, especially when he's describing the mundane. I would say that the books that I've read by him don't necessarily have a lot of plot, but they have a lot of just gorgeous writing about characters and life. I'm really impressed with his ability to just kind of create something that's very readable, but also get you involved in people's everyday lives. And yeah, I read If Beale Street Could Talk in two different sittings. It's not that long. It's really good, though. Well, uh, I should have gone first because now it's going to seem like I'm ripping you off here. But no, I also have a book for my precious moment this week. I, I did continue to watch Guy's Grocery Games, and I did continue to play Scythe, the board game with my family. But since I, I shared those this last week, this in the last episode, I'll talk about this book that I read. I don't know if people are going to want to read it, but it's called The End of October. It is a novel by Lawrence Wright. It is the kind of pandemic novel du jour, Lawrence Wright. Uh, people may know he did that great book and New Yorker piece, I think, was it a New York? He's a New Yorker staff writer. He did that book that came out a, a bit ago on Scientology and then won a, a Pulitzer Prize for his The Looming Tower, Tower book about Al-Qaeda and 9-11. He wrote a big book on Texas. This is his first foray into fiction, but the <laughs> New Yorker staff writer, reporter guy definitely comes through here. There's an awful lot of reporting on kind of disease and Middle East politics and, and all sorts of things. Very kind of Michael Crichton-esque without the gross getting back your enemies things that Michael Crichton tended to do. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. It was like playing the board game Pandemic. It's, it's kind of nice to read fiction or play play <laughs> Pandemic right now. It gives you a weird feeling of, of control a little bit, I guess, or, or a hope that maybe things aren't as bad as they could be. But it was it was an enjoyable read. All right. You're on Twitter at Ted Olson. I'm on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. How about you, Drew? Well, I have two. One is giving irretractably long answers for whoever's going to edit this. That brought me a lot of joy. <laughs> and then uh, second was my youngest, our baby turned 14 yesterday. So we have four kids. They're all teenagers. Oldest is 18, youngest 14. One of her siblings went around a couple of weeks ago and just got a bunch of her friends and people from church, people we volunteer with to just make little videos celebrating her for her birthday and then patch them together. So we got to watch, you know, like 15 minutes of people celebrating her. And she was, she didn't want to admit it, but she was down at the idea of having a birthday in quarantine. And it turned out to be one of her favorite things ever. And it was just lovely. Oh, that is great. That's really special. And also I love that a sibling did it for another sibling. That's really precious. Yeah. Cause I was not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) fair enough drew do you have any place that people can find you outside of this they can go to my narcissism hole at drewjohnson.com that's d-r-u johnson.com or the king's college website All right, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript is done by Boonmi Ashola. The music is by Sweeps. If you want to support the podcast, subscribe to our magazine. We are at orderct.com slash podcast. Thank you, everyone, who does subscribe and who has subscribed. We truly appreciate you. You can also go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show. The show is available wherever you get podcasts. We will see you all next week.